Well, good morning. As you guys know, uh, if you've been here for a while, you've heard that us say that we are one church in many locations. And so we have the South Hills campus here. Uh, we have a campus in Ross Traver, a campus in Washington, campus in uh, Wilkinsburg, and did I get everyone? Robinson, Washington, Wilkinsburg, Ross Traver. Got him. And one in DeBerry, Florida. And so you may ask, why in the world would we have a campus in DeBerry, Florida? So I'm going to show a six-minute video in a second of a commissioning there, but I wanted just to set the context of this church. Back in 1998, a guy named Glenn Stewart founded Faith Community Church in DeBerry, Florida. The church grew, moved some different locations for about 18 years, and then in 2016, uh, Glenn uh, had a, was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and he since uh, passed away. In 2016, uh, he had to step down from ministry, and there was a person at the church, uh, Nicole Jansix. She uh, used to go to the Bible chapel. She grew up here in the youth group, and so she called to say, would you have anyone on staff that may want to pastor a church in Florida? And we didn't at the time, but we said, we can help you out. Any way we can help you out, we're happy to do that. And so we started streaming uh, the teaching down there so that they could at least have that, so that they could do church and have the teaching. And we started doing some other stuff, supporting them in other ways. And so we came to the point after a couple years, where, or after about six or seven months, where they asked if they could be a part of the Bible chapel. We sent a guy uh, to do an internship down there named uh, DJ Crane, and DJ was there for two years, and uh, it was some tough times. Uh, he, he led through some really, really, really difficult times for that church. You can imagine all the transitions they were going through. And so we came out of that, and uh, DJ left in uh, 2018, at the end of 2018. Wayne Johnson went and did an, intern, uh, uh, an interim there for a few months. And we just brought on a new campus pastor. And the commissioning took place last week. Dave and Lou Motter, one of our elders, went down to do that. So we wanted you to sh see that. Wanted you to have the history and wanted you to see this commissioning into Barry for about six month, uh, six month, a six minute video. Of, uh, of what happened in the barrier last week. So check this out. I want to welcome all of our campuses across the Bible Chapel, those in the South Hills and Washington and Wilkinsburg, Robinson, Ross Traver, and all those who join us online every week. We are excited here at the DeBerry campus. Uh, we are kind of halfway through the service. We've been celebrating all morning what God's been doing here in DeBerry. Uh, for those who have a little background of the DeBerry campus, uh, through, a, through a connection to our South Hills campus, God brought the Faith Community Church to us about two and a half years ago, and through a time of prayer and discernment, uh, we decided that uh, in the stage of life of the church that they would come on as a campus, and we just had a healthy family conversation here that it has its ups and downs, as any transition would. And uh, But when I think about what God has done here through this group of people has been amazing. And, I, and we're here today to uh, commission Michael Walters as the new campus pastor. But really, I want to recognize uh, two other uh, groups of people. Uh, one, and I want to recognize the group I'm looking at that you guys cannot see because I have personally experienced what the church should look like when a group of people 
are committed to following hard after Jesus Christ, who experience the ups and downs of Christian community because we are sinners saved by grace, and yet they stay united. They stay committed. And I want to thank this group right here, first and foremost, for the past few years of, of just your continued perseverance. And uh, we thank you for that. I also want to thank this guy to my left. Uh, when we were here about five months ago, Ron, myself, and a few others, uh, we needed an interim campus pastor. Well, we were searching for someone, and we just thought maybe Wayne would do it. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, to our surprise, him and Dee uh, were thinking a little bit of the same thing. And when we met, Wayne agreed to come down here. And he and Dee have been a rock of support and have helped tremendously during this transition period. So, Wayne, thank you for your leadership and everything. And then we have Michael. So Michael uh, was one, as, as Wayne shared to the DeBerry campus, one of at least 50, if not more, candidates who apply for the position. And what I appreciate about from Michael from the beginning, there was something about Michael where you felt like he wasn't just looking for a job. He was looking for that step that God was calling to him in ministry. And Michael has a lot of experience in student ministry and an associate pastor in Huntsville, Alabama for many years. And uh, it didn't take long uh, for us to realize that Michael was most likely the guy God was calling here. But I think the visit he had here and uh, he came here and we have his wife, Mary and Nancy and Andrew, their children came. And I heard from the leadership team that weekend I think he's the guy. And there were still other candidates who were great. And I had to say, hey, we got to keep going through the process here. Uh, but we, uh, I believe the Lord solidified that weekend you were here, uh, just that you were the guy. And I just want to say one thing about Michael. Uh, I already heard, he's been here two weeks, and we actually have the mayor of DeBerry here, who shared that just this past week, uh, they had a loss here, a teenager passed away in a, in a, in a car accident. And uh, Wayne emailed me, Michael doesn't know this, but Wayne emailed me and told me the story that Michael went out of his way to reach out to the mayor and to the community and to go to that uh, memorial service and the sense of comfort he brought to the community. And for, and for Wayne, he just said in the, at the end of your email, you said, we got the right guy. We got the right guy. Thank you. And uh, Michael, that, that's the man of God we've seen through you the past uh, couple months. And I'm excited to see what God's going to do for you here in DeBerry. So I'm going to hand this off to Lou Motter, uh, who is our elder and uh, serves here for us at DeBerry. And he is going to pray over Michael. Father God, you are an awesome God, and we are nothing without you. We just thank you for being our rock, for never changing, and especially for sending Jesus down to die for our sins. And Father, we, we're in a celebration here, a celebration of Michael becoming the pastor here at the DeBerry Church, Lord. And we want to uh, uh, thank you for providing him for us, and we want to... Uh, uh, remind him of what, uh, his duties here, Lord, and we just uh, we are impressed with, uh, with the way he's handled things so far, and, and and with his vision, with his enthusiasm, and and Father, we we believe that uh, you you have sent him here for us, and and we just thank you for that. And we thank you uh, for Mary, and we we lift her up to you, Lord, as. Uh, 
the wife of a pastor is a very tough job, Lord. And we just uh, uh, we thank you for Mary, and we just put her in your hands, and we ask that you will give her your wisdom and discernment and your patience. There's going to be a lot of consternation that goes on in this marriage as a result of the, the ministry that they will do. So we put all of this in your hands, and we look forward to the progress of this church over the years to come, that it will be a shining example for everyone in Florida. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. Congratulations. Michael. So let's thank God for what's going on in DeBerry. And Father, we thank you for what's going on here. We thank you for each person here today, Lord, and um, what you are doing in their life. Everybody is on a spiritual journey. And I pray, Lord, that, uh, that, you would, that wherever we are on that journey today, you would, you would meet us right there. And don't, don't leave us there. Take us to that next place. Help us, Lord, to, to be those who, um, who follow you, who engage with you, who have fellowship with you through your son Jesus. And I pray today, Lord, as we look at your, uh, the passage in your word that you would teach us as only you can do. We have nothing to say unless it comes from your word. And we pray, Father, that you would teach us today and, and speak to areas of our heart, Lord, that may be hidden or hardened uh, over time and, and uh, a negligence uh, of some sin. And just pray, Lord, that you would uh, that you'd do your work. That's what we're asking, that you do your work in our lives today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, take your Bibles, if you would, and open to 1 John. New Testament, 1 John, go to Revelation, turn back four books, and you are at the book of 1 John. Let me give you a brief review of the book. Remember, it's written by one of the disciples of Jesus uh, John is now in his 70s or 80s when this book is written. That's pretty significant because the lifespan during that time was less than 50. So John's an old man. And between 85 and 95 AD, he writes four books. He writes the gospel. He writes five books. He writes the gospel of John, first, second, and third John, three letters, and then the revelation. He's exiled to the Isle of Patmos for a time. He writes the revelation. He then goes back to Ephesus where he writes this book. And he passes away there, again, well advanced in age. When John writes books, he normally will tell you exactly why he wrote the book. Now, every book in the Bible, you can determine its purpose. You can read it, and you can see why it was written. Sometimes, as in John's case, he tells us exactly why he wrote the book. In the book of First John, there are five reasons why he wrote the book. You can follow along on your sermon notes if you want to do that. First, he wrote to encourage Christian fellowship, to encourage Christian belonging. We read a lot about fellowship and community in the book, the letter of 1 John. To help believers experience true joy, regardless of circumstance, regardless of what you're going through, a deep, settled peace, a deep, settled joy. John wants us to know that. To help believers avoid falling into patterns of sin, to guard from false teaching, a major part of this book, John is speaking against the false teaching of the day. And then number five, to allow believers to know with certainty that they are children of God and will forever be. John says in chapter 5, verse 13, 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you can what? Know, not guess, not hope, not wish, not wait to the end and see how it turns out, but you can know 
with certainty you have eternal life. Last time we were together, we looked at a passage where John said, I have a new commandment to you that's really an old commandment. And this commandment was, as we saw last time, to love one another. Now that love obviously starts with God. We love vertically. We can't love unless God first loves us. And then it goes horizontally, first in our homes, in those relationships closest to us, with our children, if we're married and have children, and then to the others around us. So I always mention that because a lot of times when we say love one another, we skip home and go right to the church. And that's not the case. That love one another starts with the relationship that God has given you as husband and wife if you are married. Jesus said, this new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also uh, ought, to love, ought to love one another. And check this out, by this, by your loving each other, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus says, here is a measurement that you are truly my disciple. People are going to look and see how you interact with each other in the church. By the way, that happens a lot, doesn't it? People look and see how we interact with each other. And if there's fighting and bickering, if there is um, conflict and issues, then people say, why would I want to get involved in that? I get that all week long. You know you're my disciples, Jesus says, if what? You demonstrate that love to each other. Now, there's one thing that constantly competes with that love. And that's what John's going to teach us about today in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Here's what I'd like to do. Let's read these passages together. They'll be on the screen. Let's read John, 1 John 2, 15 through 17 together. Then we'll go through each verse. All right, here we go. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But those who does the will of God abides forever. All right, let's work through this passage. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. This is the Greek word cosmos, and that's significant because John uses this word in three different ways in his writings. Sometimes when he uses the word cosmos, he is speaking about the universe that God created. So the universe, the, the, the physical world. Sometimes when he uses this word, he is speaking about people. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. God so loved people that he gave his only begotten son. And sometimes when John uses the word world, he is speaking about a system that opposes God, attitudes and values against God. That's the way John uses it here in this passage. John is talking about the attitudes and values that oppose God or ignore God. When John says, don't love the world or the things in the world, he is speaking about this evil, organized, earthly system controlled by who? Controlled by Satan, aligned against God and believers. We should never be surprised when the things of this world 
oppose the things of God. You have an earthly, evil, organized system controlled by Satan opposing the things of God. And so John says, don't love the world or the things in the world. And if you do that, the love of the Father is not in you. You cannot do both. You cannot love the world and God at the same time. You cannot serve two masters. So let's think about the things that would be in the world. What are we talking about when we talk about this evil system, right? First of all, we can just start with the things, the Ten Commandments, and the things that are against the Ten Commandments. And so here are the things in the Ten Commandments, the summary of the Old Testament law that God would have us do, and we see things that are going on in our world that oppose that. So every murder, right, is part of the evil system controlled by Satan. Every lie is a part of the evil world composed, controlled by Satan. Lying, stealing, adultery, every time someone breaks that marriage covenant, that is part of the world system, not of what God intended for us to be a part of. Those are the things our culture, that is in our culture, that opposed, that opposed God. There are other things that we see going on in our culture today that we would say that's just not what God's Word says. One would be a redefinition of marriage. The Bible clearly says that marriage is a relationship ordained by God between a man and a woman, their gender defined at birth. We have to add that today. Their gender defined at birth, and that relationship should be for life. That's what God says. So divorce is part of the world system, not part of God's system. Now, as soon as I say that, some of you are divorced. I get that. And you didn't want that to happen, and you worked so that didn't happen. So this isn't to rub salt in a wound. It's just to say that God says, one time, for all time, one woman, one man, together for life. That's his ideal. And then we live in this world system that is infiltrated by sin. We would also say abortion <clears throat> is something that the world system promotes. We would say that life is special, life is precious, that it starts conception, that it should be protected, that all life should be protected from conce conception to the grave. But we have issues going on in New York and Virginia right now that basically infanticide, right? That's the world system. That's against what God has to say in his word. Sex, sexual identity is up for grabs. My son took a personality assessment at work uh, a few months ago, and he said under gender there were seven options. Seven options. And so that shouldn't surprise us because that's the system of the world. Now, those are the ones we always like to drill down on, aren't they? Those are the ones we always like to talk about and we like to post on Facebook, and we like to get in debates with people. Those are the ones we like to take clips of our favorite <clears throat> conservative cable news and then send it to somebody else. Those are the easy ones. But here are the ones Christians don't like to talk about. Gossip. And greed. And money. 
and slander and backbiting and conflict that doesn't get resolved and not talking to someone across the aisle. Those, those are in the same category as the ones we just mentioned earlier. Same category. There is no good sin and bad sin. Christians who fly the pro-life flag, they fly it high, and many of them have bought into the world system of serving money rather than God. Many people will rail against the issues of sexual identity and at the same time find their identity in the house they live in, the clothes they wear, or the car they drive. And it's sad but true, isn't it? A few months ago, uh, my daughter was home from college and she has an older car, a little car, had about 270,000 miles on it, had one of those you roll up the windows by hand. They still make those? <laughs> I don't think they do. And uh, I, was, I, I had to drive that car. And, and, and I'm telling you, I stopped out here on Route 19 at a, at, a, at a stoplight, and I felt like rolling down my window and say, this is really not my car. <laughs> I got another car. Why did I feel that way? Why did I feel that way? Because there's an identity, right? We buy, we buy into the world system. All of us do. And that's what we're battling against. We find an identity in, in a home. We find an identity in stuff. And so we can rail against other things, but we have to make sure we, railing against those things, remember there is no good sin and bad sin. It's all in the list together. You can't pick and choose. And so some people coddle their, their anti-God sins by making things and people in the world. Let me ask you this question. Why, during football season, do we make certain we look at the Steelers' schedule before we schedule anything at church? Why do we do that? Because we know if we schedule a night of worship when the Steelers play at 8.30, we get beat. People stay home and watch the Steelers game. We buy into the world system. The things of the world become our God. And then we pick and choose what we really want to say is a sin and what's not a sin. Do you remember the woman caught in adultery in Scripture? And those guys had stones ready to, ready to put her, caught in the act of adultery. And they had stones ready to stone her. Remember what Jesus said? Yeah, go ahead. The person who doesn't have any sin cast the first stone. And all of them dropped the stones and walked away. So part, of the, so part of the world system that Satan gets us into, right, is judging other people. Part of the world system is that Satan wants us to say is, oh, that sin's really bad, but mine's not so bad. And we buy in to that system. Exodus 20, verse 3, the first commandment says, you shall have what? No other gods before me. 
In 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, there's a story about Solomon. Solomon was his wise king, the son of David. You remember him? And uh, during his kingdom, God blessed like crazy. They had more wealth in Israel during Solomon's day than any other time. But Solomon, because of his personal lust and for political reasons, he married a bunch of women. 300 wives and 700 concubines. Or was it 700 wives and 300 concubines? I always get those mixed up. It really doesn't matter. That was wrong, right? And in uh, 1 Kings 11, verse 4, it says, Solomon's wives turned his heart from fully following after God. So here's my question for all of us. What's turning our heart? What is it that turns our heart from fully following after God? Now, John is going to explain some more what he means by the world. Remember this evil system. He says there are three things that make up this evil system. John is not giving us an exhaustive list of sin. He's not even giving us exhaustive categories. He's just putting before us three big categories for us to think through and for us to evaluate our lives. By the way, we're all in this. I get to stand up here and teach, but I struggle with this just like everybody else. The first one is the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh, the cravings, the lust, the wanting, the yearning for, the thinking about, the craving of the flesh. Here John is talking about the internal cravings of our sinful nature. The internal cravings of our sinful nature. Now let's make sure we understand this. When we trust in Jesus Christ alone as the only way to have a relationship with God, the penalty of sin is done away with, right? Jesus paid for that on the cross. The penalty of sin is has been paid for in full. The propensity to sin, the desire to sin, the inclination to sin, our sinful nature is not done away with. It's not eradicated. It stays with us, and therein lies the battle of our Christian life. So <clears throat> we've been using this illustration. We said that God's penalty or his judgment on sin, his wrath, Scripture says, is poured out, Romans 3, on those who suppress the truth. So on your own, if you just live this life on your own, you're going to experience God's wrath forever. But God doesn't want you to do that. He's provided another way for everyone. So here we have God's wrath. He's the just judge. He said the penalty of sin is death. He can't go back on his word. He still pours out his wrath, but he sent his son to take that wrath on our behalf. And so those who trust in Jesus, we don't have to take the wrath. Jesus, what? He took it for us. He paid it in full. So the penalty of sin, the judgment on sin is done. But the inclination to sin remains. And so we live our life, and it should look something like this. There are ups and downs. Sometimes we, we sin. When we sin, we confess our sins. First John 1, 9, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then one day, we go to be with him in heaven. If, if, we're, if we're growing, we're going to have some progress there, but there are going to be ups and downs along the way. So three theological words you can, you can use here. When we come to Christ, this is called 
justification, right? When we go to heaven, that's called what? Glorification. And this process right here, what's that called? Sanctification, right? And sanctification is just a big word that means holy. The word means holy. So you're becoming more like God, more set apart, growing in your walk with him. And we've seen that when we sin, as a believer, we have an advocate. Jesus is always there to take our sin to God and say, you cannot punish them for that sin. I paid for that in full. Their sin has been forgiven. The penalty of sin is done. But that's the struggle, right, of wanting to be, identify ourselves with a car we drive or the house we live in, the, the, the desires of the flesh, the inclinations of the sinful nature, John says, are always going to be there. That's the battle we're in. And so we have to fight that battle. We have to depend on God to give us everything we need in that battle. The second thing, John says, not only the desires of the flesh, but the craving or the desires of the eyes. And here, just write the word a covet or covetousness. Again, wanting what's not yours. Seeing things that you want that you shouldn't have. The eyes are kind of the, as one person described, the, the window of the soul. And so it's through the eyes that we first see stuff. And when we see it, then we want it. If we don't check it against God's word and live a life of obedience that he wants, we take in the things we shouldn't take in. It happened from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, remember? God told Adam and Eve, you got everything you could ever want, everything you'll ever need. It's a beautiful garden, no sin. There's this one tree in the middle of the garden. Don't eat of it. If you eat it, you will die. That's where the penalty of sin began. And remember what Genesis 3 says? Eve saw the fruit. Remember what it says? And it was pleasing to her eyes. And then she took it. She saw. She wanted. She took. David, man after God's own heart. First Samuel chapter 11. He's out on his roof one day. Looks down, sees a woman bathing, Bathsheba. He saw, then he wanted, then he took. Achan, uh, Joshua chapter 7. Joshua leads a battle. I think it's against the Amalekites. They get all this bounty. They're not supposed to take any of it. But Achan did, and when he's confronted, he said, I saw it, I wanted it, and I took it. That's the pattern of sin. You see it, you want it, you take it. That's why Job said in Job chapter 31, 1, I made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? I made a covenant with my eyes. Now, Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible. It's written about the same time as Moses was writing Genesis, about the same time as the patriarchs. So let's just think about that. Uh, there were no billboards. There were no magazines. Uh, there was no TV. There were no iPhones. And Job still had trouble with lust. Why? Because it's inside us. It's part of that sinful nature. And Job knew that if he gazed at things he shouldn't gaze at, 
it was wrong. And so he said, I've made a covenant with my, I made a deal with my eyes. I made a contract with my eyes. There are some things I do not look at. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus said, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart. As Calvin used to say, don't pat yourself on the back just because you haven't committed adultery when you lust with your eyes. Letting it in, letting the sinful nature take over, and playing it out in your mind. Jot down this verse, Psalm 119.37. This is a prayer we should pray every day. David prayed, Lord, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. I love that prayer. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Now, that's not only pornography. That's stuff I shouldn't look at. That's stuff I shouldn't be letting my mind think about. Turn my eyes from worthless things. One commentator says that this avenue of sin, our eyes, focuses on the enjoyment of the present without an analysis or understanding of future ramifications. Let me say that again. Focuses on the enjoyment of the present without an analysis or understanding of future ramifications. The desires of the eyes make us short-sighted. One more. John says, <coughs> not only the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, but the pride of life. Another good translation says, the pride of possessions. What you have. The pride of possessions. Now, just, let's just think about this. Having things is not a sin. The patriarchs of the Old Testament were very wealthy. Having things is not a sin. But why is it so dangerous when we have a lot of stuff? Because we become independent of God, right? So when I pray the prayer, Lord, give us today our daily bread... I don't really have to worry about that because there's plenty of food in the refrigerator to last the week. So I don't have to depend on God for today. So I become independent of Him. My job that brings the income makes me independent. My position makes me independent of God. My education makes me independent of God. My social status makes me independent of God. See, after a while, I don't need God because my God is really the stuff around me, the things I have. By the way, if you go to the Mathari slums and you walk down the middle of the road where there's open sewer running and they're living in dirt floors and there's no running water and no refrigeration, none of that stuff, why do those people long for heaven more than we do? Because we say, could heaven be any better than this? It's pretty good, isn't it? Got everything I want. Got everything I need. This life is pretty good. If I don't have something I need, I just go buy it. This world system is pretty good. 
And so we become independent of God. Why is it that many believers get all fired up about politics? Now, I, I am for voting and knowing who to vote for as much as the next person. But I got to tell you, every election cycle, I see Christians get more fired up about a politician or an election than they ever get fired up about anything spiritual in their life. And that drives me absolutely crazy. And so I get notes. You better, you better uh, recommend this candidate or we're leaving the church. You better recommend this candidate since you don't have guts to do that. You're not teaching the truth. We're not going to give during the, during the cycle. And I want to say, are you serious? It drives me crazy. When people make the government their God. And when people make the government their God, then we see things like we're seeing today. An uptick in the younger generation on socialism. When we make the government our God, socialism is the next thing. Feed me. Give me a job. Insure me. Pay for my college. And protect me. The government is my God. We're setting the stage for that. When we make politics to be our God. Now, should we have national security? Absolutely. David had a strong army. But he also said, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. But what? We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Yeah, he went out to fight and he fought hard and he trained his men. I'm not saying you don't have those things. But at the end of the day, is God God or not? That's what we have to ask ourselves. What are we depending on as our God? The pride of possessions. The pride of life. The things we really bow down before. What is that in our lives? Pride of life can uh, get us into some trouble, can't it? First uh, Timothy says this, not, not, not money, not money, but the love of money, the desire for more money, making God your money. Remember, Jesus said you cannot serve God money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And through it, through this craving, that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. The love of money is the root of all evil. Anyone heard about the college scandals going on? Allegations include bribing college entrance exams officials to facilitate cheating on, on the entrance exam tests, the SATs, the ACTs, the ACTS, and the SAT. Bribing coaches. Bribing coaches. One coach got $400,000 to say that, yeah, this kid's a great tennis player and probably never had played tennis in his or her life. Got a scholarship or admission to college because of that. Allegations having third parties take class exams. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some of our, some of our most prestigious colleges around, Yale, Stanford, Georgetown, Boston University, Northeast, you've read this in this, UCLA, USC, Wake Forest, even the University of Texas. I don't know how that made it the prestigious, but <laughs> University of Texas... 
Multiple coaches have been fired, placed on administrative leave. That's the world system highlighted. And we know that we could fall in that trap if we didn't watch ourselves, couldn't we? Because we want our kids in the best colleges too. We want to do the best things for our kids all along the way. Why do some people go overboard, don't even take their kids to church for years so that they can go do some athletic training on a Sunday morning? The love, the pride of life is a desire that John says is of the world, not of God. We're in the battle. Here's why it's so important to get it right. The world, this cosmos, this earthly evil system organized by Satan, not going to be here for it is passing away. It's going to rust, rot, and decay, and in the end, burn up with all its desires. So if you want to invest in that, just know it's not a good investment. The stock's going to take a dive on that. It's going to pass away. But whoever does the will of God, whoever follows God's way, as outlined in his word, abides forever. What do you want to invest in? Something that's going to pass away? Something that's not going to be here? Something that's not going to last? Or something that's going to abide forever? It's an easy answer, isn't it? It's just hard to do. Let me end with four questions for you to take and evaluate on your own. Think about these, pray about these. As I do, determine if, how we're doing in these areas. Number one, what do you crave? What do you truly desire? If I had to write down that one thing you desire, what would it be? More stuff? More things? What do you wake up thinking about? If you were to evaluate your time, where does most of your time go? Those are the things you crave. Those are the things you're investing in, the things you put time into, the things you invest your money into. That's what you crave. Are they going to pass away? Are they going to abide forever? Secondly, are you focused on worthless things? Is your focus on temporal things or eternal things. I'm always amazed at people who say, yeah, I'm going to retire early so I can whatever. Now, some people say, I'm going to retire early so I can spend my lot, the rest of my time doing what God wants me to do. I'm going to use that time. I'm going to spend it for the Lord. That's fantastic. Now, as you're working, you're still spending your time for the Lord, right? It's not, a, it's not an either or. But then there are some people who say, now when I retire, I'm going to move south and I'm going to get in one of those gated communities where there's a golf course and I can ride, you know, golf carts 
and they get sushi lessons and all this stuff. Is that really what, is that really, is that really how you want to walk into heaven? Sushi lessons? That's what some people do. How are you using all the time God has given you? Are you focused on worthless things? Number three, what's the basis of your commitment? What's the basis of your commitment? Is it the love of the world? Do you get cont- are you contented? And do you feel security? Do you feel safety because of something coming from the world? Or is your contentment, your security, your safety coming from God himself? What, is the, what really is the basis of your contentment? And last... What are you doing to invest in eternity? What are you doing to invest in things that will outlive you? What are you doing to invest in things that you may never see come to fruition? They're eternal things. I was uh, on a board of a a ministry, and I was at the board meeting this week. I won't mention the ministry, but we were talking about giving. And uh, there was a, a lot of people on the board who were on other boards, and they were talking about all nonprofits and churches, how they struggled last year uh, in 2018 versus 2017. And how 2017 was a big year, and 2018 in December, you know, a lot of churches and a lot of nonprofits get a lot of ministries, get a lot of money in in December, but not in December. You know why? One guy is a Wall Street guy, and he was there because of the tax because of some of the tax things that went on in 2017, 2018. It was, it was better, the government did some laws, it was better to give in 2017 than 18. And I'm thinking, okay, let me just think about this. We're willing to give if it benefits us. And we're not going to give if it doesn't benefit us. Now, if that's the case, we got to back way up, don't we? <laughs> And talk about, why would we give in the first place? Why would there be more money coming in if the government makes it more beneficial and less money when it's not? Does anyone else see an issue with that? We should be giving because God's given it to us regardless of what tax law has been passed or is beneficial for us. We should be giving because God has given us everything we need and we do it as a matter of worship, not as a tax write-off. One of these days, it may not be a tax write-off. Will we still give then? What are you doing to invest in eternity? Are you using the gift that God has given you? Are you using the money God has given you? Are you using the time that God has given you. Many of you know the name Jim Elliott. He was a missionary in the 50s. Uh, He and some other guys uh, went to share the gospel with a tribe of Indians, the Aka Indians. And and if you know the story, they landed and they tried to befriend the Indians. And at the end of the day, in 1956, they were killed. Their story was on Life magazine and And actually, because of 
the fact that they were killed. Many youth at that time uh, took up the banner and said, we're going to go to the ends of the earth and share the gospel. So a tragic situation actually produced a lot of missionaries during that time. Jim Elliott said a lot of fantastic things, but here's one of the quotes that is often attributed to him. Elliott said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. John just says it this way. The world is passing away and all the things in the world are passing away. But whoever does the will of God, what? Abides forever. That's significant stuff. The worship team's going to come out and lead us in the last song. And as we get ready to sing the song, I want you to think of the lyrics of the song. I want you to think of who you're singing to and what you're singing. And I'm going to ask you, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to do something. If you can't say it from your heart, don't sing the words. If you can't say it, don't sing it. Because this is urgent. This is serious. We don't do this as a hobby. We don't do this as just something we do on this Sundays. This is our time to determine if we're in or out. John says, you can't, you can't love, you can't talk about loving God and then love the world. You can't do it. It's impossible. Jesus says you're going to love the one, hate the other, or despise the one, and, and love the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and stuff. You can't serve God and your desires. You've got to choose one or the other. So let's stand. And before God, if you can say these words, and this is your desire, sing them out. If not, just ask God to work on your heart so that you can be as urgent about his work as the world wants you to be urgent about the evil system that Satan controls. Let's sing this song.
front. Our prayer team would love to pray with you and for you. Anything you have going on in your life, let's pray before we go. Father, as we, uh, as we walk out those doors into a world system that is totally opposed to you, we pray that we would be a light that shines, that people would see there's something different that people would see what it truly looks like, what it truly looks like to follow hard after Jesus Christ. People are dying to see that. People are desperate to see that. And Father, we pray this week we would be that person who demonstrates that light in your love through our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.